Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and teach us so that you would have us to see. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Ammonites, which were on the other side of the, of the Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were, were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel, until they were passed over, that their hearts melted, neither was their spirit in them any more, because the children of Israel. At that time the Lord said unto Joshua, Make you sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel a second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the, at the hill of the Philistines. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that had come out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that of the men of war died, which came out of Egypt, were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord swore unto their fathers that he would give them, a land that flowed with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them in the way and it came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in the place in their places in the camp till they were whole and the Lord said unto Joshua this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from from off you wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day all right so we're going to stop there because this is something that's kind of an interesting uh, process that's going on First, we look at verse 1. They crossed over the Jordan River on dry land, which we talked about the last week. They gathered the 12 stones. They made the pillar to memorialize this. And what was the pillar's purpose? Memorial. Memorial. So they, they said, when your children see this and ask. You know, and we talked a lot about how we should live lives that our children, grandchildren should ask, why? Why are we doing this? Why, why do we do what we do? Uh, during the Passover, the youngest child is supposed to is taught to ask the question in the Jewish Passover, why do we do this? Because it's part of what God said they would do, so they make sure they don't wait for the child to do it. It's actually part of the process that the youngest child will, that can speak, obviously, will ask the question, why do we do this? And then the eldest, eldest, member, eldest male member will tell the story of the Passover and the, and the leaving of Egypt. So it's a partial part of, part of the routine. But in this one, it says in verse five, ver, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, were on, which were on, this, on the side of the Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, that heard that the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the children of Israel until they passed over, their hearts melted, neither was their spirit any more in them. Now we, we think about this. They're crossing into the land. It's been 40 years since God has done the miracle of, of drying up the Red Sea, but this is putting it fresh in their mind. But remember we talked about Rahab? Rahab says, we've heard what God did to e what your God did to Egypt, and we're terrified. So they're already set up to be terrified, even though at that point they're kind of thinking, 
oh, this happened long ago. This is not, you know, it happened long ago. Maybe their gods weakened. You know, maybe our gods are stronger. And all of a sudden, what is in the back of their mind as kind of a mythology becomes real. God stops the Jordan River at flood stage from flowing. Okay? And we want to keep that in mind. It was at flood stage. It was already overflowing. It was a big enough miracle to stop it from flowing, period. But it's overflowing its banks, and God stops it, and the people know it. It's no longer this kind of mythological thing. You know, 40 years ago, their God was supposed to have split the Red Sea so that they could cross, you know, and they did kind of leave Egypt, so we kind of believe it, but now all of a sudden it's, uh, their God hasn't changed at all. He stopped the Jordan. Now they are going from being afraid to being terrified. They are not in the mood to fight. They are not, they don't have the heart to fight. They know they're coming in, into their land. They know they're coming to destroy them. And they have lost the spirit to fight. And I don't know if any of you have played much sports or anything, but if you played in a, if you played sports, either you had a team once in a while that maybe lost its winning winning competitive edge, or you played a team that was just they 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 didn't have any desire to win, and it seemed like nothing they did went right. If a, if a nation loses its desire to fight for its existence, it becomes easy prey, and here these people are basically easy prey. They've lost their will to fight. They're going, this God, how can we stand against this God? Their God can stop. He split the Red Sea. He destroyed Egypt. We, and they're thinking about, once they, once they, you know, we remember splitting the Red Sea, and now we split the Jordan. Then they're going to start remembering all the other things their God has done. That he's destroyed the, the kings on the western side of the, of the Jordan, uh, eastern side of the Jordan. And they're going, okay, we can't stop this God. Nobody's been able to stop him. Egypt couldn't. All these other kings haven't been able to stand up to them. What, what's going to happen with us? And they're going to try to fight, but they've lost their will. And so they're, they're in a position where things are going to happen. Now, let's look at the very first thing they do when they cross into Jordan. And this to me is kind of bizarre because circumcision is something that God commanded the children of Israel to do all the way back at Genesis chapter 17. All right? They are now 470 years from the time that it was commanded to be circumcised, and they're not doing it. Okay? They're not obeying God. So we want to look at this, and I just want to go back to Genesis 17 for a moment. Reading at verse 9. And God said unto Abraham, You shall keep my covenant thereof, you and your seed after you and their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between you and me and your seed after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and he shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between you and me. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations and he that is born in your house and and or bought with money or any of any stranger which is not of your seed he that is born in your house and he that is brought, brought with money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant 
And the uncircumcised male child whose flesh of the foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. Okay, this is God's covenant with Abraham. Your children, every male in your house is to be circumcised. It is my covenant between you and me. It shows that we have a covenant. It's an outward sign of what God has agreed to do. And they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, later on in this chapter, it talks about Abraham going out and he circumcises himself and all his servants. And he mentions Ishmael is circumcised at age 13. Because Ishmael is 13 years older than Isaac. All right, so Isaac is going to be circumcised on eight day on the eighth day, and Ishmael is thirteen, and it kind of and this plays a picture in the next scripture we're going to go into, which is Exodus chapter four. Now we don't know for sure that Abe, that Moses was circumcised, but I'm going to tell you, being born to the parents that he was born, he probably was. All right, because he was godly parents. So we're going to look in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. And this is kind of an interesting statement, and we covered this many, many, many years ago now when we covered Exodus. <laughs> chapter 4, verse 24. And it came to pass the way, by the way of the end that the Lord met him, this is Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband you are to me. So he let him go, and she said, A bloody husband are you because of the circumcision. Circumcision is not playing an important part in, in Moses' thought processes. All right? He has not circumcised his own children. God called him at the burning bush. He sent him to go talk to Pharaoh, and on his way to go talk to Pharaoh... It says that God went out to, just, to kill him because he had not circumcised his own children. And remember, we just read in, in, in Genesis that the male who is not circumcised is to be cut off from his people. So Moses' own children were not properly being raised up because he had not circumcised. Now... Zipporah knew what to do, and I'm going to tell you, and we told you this before, because they were basically unequal, unequally yoked, Zipporah is from the Midian tribe. The Midian tribe is a believer in one God, but they're not of the seed of Abraham. Abraham is from, from another, you know, well, they are from the seed of Abraham through Ishmael, but they believe in one God. But you know, when they, they, the Midianites would circumcise their male children at age 13. So there's a, probably a battle between Moses and Zipporah as to when are you going to circumcise this child? Moses, well, we Jews do it at eight days old. She's saying we do it at thir 13 years old. And he probably didn't care because he had not been raised as a Jew. Okay? Remember this, he was... He was put in when he could no longer be hidden. He was put in the basket, put into the river Nile, and uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, rescued him out of the out of the river. And which means he was, you know, how old? I don't know. How old do you have to be before you can't be hidden as a baby? Before you make too much noise or anything? 
And Miriam went up to her, said, I can find a nurse. And she was able to nurse him probably for two to three years, maybe four years at the most. And then he went back to Pharaoh. So he would not have had a long time to be raised as a Hebrew. And I don't believe that they could have raised him completely as a Hebrew during that time because Pharaoh's daughter is probably there going, no, you're, we're raising him up to be Egyptian. He's not going to be Hebrew. He's going to spend 40 years being trained to be the, a, a leader in Egypt, which means he's not going to have the training of God. He's not going to have any of the trainings. He's going to be trained for war, administration, the worship of the Egyptian gods. Okay, this is his background that he's been having. Apparently, from what, when we see when he sees the Hebrew being beat, he it stirs something inside him. He either knows that he's Jewish, or it stirs up and he and he tries to defend the Jewish man who's beaten, and then he ends up killing him and being kicked out. Forty years. Forty years being raised as an Egyptian. Well, his life breaks up in forty, forty, and forty. Uh, now, is it exactly 40? You know, could it be 38 rounded up to 40? Could it be 41 rounded down? But we look at this and he says he was being raised for 40 years to be an Egyptian ruler. He murders the man and he runs for his life. And he spends 40 years being humbled, being broken by God to be nothing. He's a shepherd. Now, you don't get much lower than a shepherd, especially when he's being raised an Egyptian. And if you remember back when... Jo uh, Joseph tells his father, don't tell Pharaoh that you're, you're shepherds because they are an abomination to the Egyptians. So Moses goes from the highest possible position that he could have, being raised to be king, to about as low as you possibly could go. He's a murderer and a shepherd. And he gets to do that for 40 years. And then God calls him back into service. And when you, when you think about his high to his low, and you start listening to his excuses, God, I just can't do this. He's raised to be, he was raised to be a leader of a nation. And he's telling God, I can't do this. You know, his excuses fall totally flat when you really look at his history. But he finally gives up, he's on his way back, and because he hasn't circumcised his child, and he's living in a position of disobedience to God, God comes in to kill Moses. And Zipporah rescues him. She seems to be more spiritual in this particular case, knowing what needs to be done. And she goes, because you didn't do your job, I had to do it, and now you're, you know, you're, you, you've made me have to shed this blood. Uh, because shedding of the blood of the child would have caused some problems. So we go from there, and we go to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to go into seeing where these children of Israel that are leaving Egypt are all circumcised. And looking at chapter 12, verse 24, you shall observe to do all things for the ordinance, for an ordinance unto you and your sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you come into the land which the Lord shall give you according to all that he has promised, you shall keep this service, talking about Passover. You shall pass when you're... And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean you by this service? You shall say, It is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered them the houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. To verse 43. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof, but every man's servant that is bought for money when he is 
has circumcised him, then he shall eat. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house it shall be eaten, and you shall carry it, not carry forth the fresh or broad out of the house. Neither shall you break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall eat, keep it. And when the stranger shall sojourn with you and, and will keep the Passover, the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one born in the land, as for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. So when they issued the instruction for the Passover, they were also told to make sure everybody was circumcised. They're re-emphasizing. Why are they doing it? Because Abraham and God's covenant was, it's the outward sign. All right? So now we read in Joshua chapter 5 that the people have not been getting circumcised in the wilderness. And I think part of it is because Moses doesn't have a, it's not high on his priority list. Have you ever had something that's not high on your priority list and have somebody make a big deal out of it? Yes. Oftentimes we have this happen. You know, it's, it's not important to me, but somebody goes, wow, this is the most important thing. How could you not be doing this? The sad thing is if we do that to somebody, something is so important to us, we make it a big deal for them. We need, in most issues, we need to let God be God in their life. We were talking uh, as we came up, you know, different doctrines that we have out there. Some people are so adamant about certain doctrines that they're ready to go to war. If you don't believe this, you're just, you just can't go to heaven because you don't believe this particular doctrine. It has nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible or, or resurrection. It's, it's something really simple. Uh, one of the things I can think of is something like what day did Jesus die on? Most of, the church, most of the Christian church believes he died on Friday. And I've shared with you, I don't believe that he died on Friday. And I've given you, I've shared my reasons why. I believe he died on, on Wednesday. And there's a lot of reasons why. And I can go over them if anybody's interested, but not right now. <laughs> you can go back to the previous sermons and find that information. But, it, but the Bible says he was dead for three days and three nights. And no matter how you want to gymnastics it, Friday, you cannot get to three days and three nights. And they'll tell you, well, it's part, part of Friday, part of Sunday, so you have three days, but you still only have two nights, no matter how they try to mental gymnastics it. Um, and there's other, many other reasons why. But, uh, but I've come across people who they will die. If you don't believe that Jesus died on Friday, it's the absolute into the world okay because how can you have good friday if you didn't if you didn't die on friday well i agree you can't have good friday if you didn't die on friday uh but am i going to sit there and argue tooth and nail over what day jesus died no i think it's pretty important i think it's biblical the way i believe but i'm not going to sit there and say you've got to believe the way i believe because it has nothing to do with salvation you know, we were talking about Genesis 6, where, where the sons of God married the, the daughters of man. And, you know, there's a whole school of people that believe angels had sex with women and created half-breed demonic beings. I don't agree with that, because in Genesis 2, it says everything reproduces after its own kind. Okay, and then, so if you're saying that man and demons were able to interbreed, then somehow you're saying that man and angels are the same kind. And we're not the same kind. We're very different. Our destiny as humans is not to become angels. It's to rule over angels. All right? We are a different kind. We cannot interbreed. Now, 
Again, am I going to sit there and argue with everybody who says they want to believe the other way? No, I'll point out my scriptural reasons for what I believe. Let them point out their, their scriptural reasons for what they believe, which I don't buy into, but <laughs> you know, I look at their scriptures and say, okay, your scriptures can be interpreted different ways. You cannot interpret in, you know, mixing, you know, breed, uh, producing after your own kind in any other way but after your own kind. So, but am I going to sit there and fight tooth and nail with them? No, it's not that important when it comes down to it. Okay, I think it has got some ramifications that are important, but it's not something that is all that greatly important. If somebody doesn't believe in six days of creation, are they going to go to hell because they don't believe in six days of creation? Not that they believe in Jesus, but I have serious other problems. If you don't believe in six days of creation, you don't believe that Adam and Eve are the reason for the for sin and death entering the world, then why did Jesus come in the first place? But so there's all kinds of different, you know, is it something that I'm going to sit there and say, you got to believe? No. I can give you the reasons why you should believe. <laughs> I can give you the biblical reasons why you should believe. But there's certain things that just aren't that important. Now, if we want to say that Jesus wasn't the son of God and that he was just a man, now we've got a problem. <laughs> Because that's the whole salvation issue. If he's, not the, if he's not God's son, he can't save us. If he didn't live a perfect life, he wasn't worthy of saving us. If he didn't die on the cross, then he didn't fulfill the payment of our sin. And if he didn't resurrect, he wasn't victorious over sin. Those are something that are absolutely important to believe. Because I don't understand how you could be a Christian and not believe those. Because what are you believing in if you don't believe in those? But outside of those handful of things, there's not a whole lot. The only other thing that I would say is absolute responsible is that the whole word of God is absolutely true. Okay? Outside of that, there's things I believe, and I believe strongly. If you talk to me on these topics, you'll find out. I believe them very strongly. But if you want to tell me you don't believe them and you want to give me your reasons why and we just can civilly discuss it, we'll just civilly discuss it, I will know that you're wrong and, and you will know that I'm wrong and we can go from there. And when we get to heaven, you'll find out that I'm right. <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek. I'll take that tongue-in-cheek, you know, because I could, I could be wrong, too, you know. So in heaven, we'll find out who's right and wrong. Wearing that t-shirt in heaven, I was only wrong. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> the point of this all is, is there's certain things that are very important. They're, they're the hills to fight on. And there's other things that, while they do have some serious ramifications if you believe or don't believe them, they're not, they're not life or death issues. They're not heaven or hell issues. And on those ones, let people be right or wrong and believe what they want. Be ready to explain why you believe what you believe and leave it at that. And I'm the type of person that I will talk. I'm, I'm willing to talk about any doctrinal issue anybody wants to talk about. But if they're going to say, I'm ready to die for this, then I'm going, okay, you stay on your hill and die. I'm, I, I'm not going to fight this battle because it's not that important. And there's very few things in the Bible that are so important that they are life or death issues. There are some things that are very serious. There are some things when God calls sin, sin, we need to stand and say it's sin. We can't compromise on those things. We can't compromise on things that God says very clearly. But if it's not a clear issue, just back off. Even if you think it's clear, if it's not a salvation issue, back off. It's not that big a deal. And this is one of these things. I think for Moses, circumcision wasn't that big a deal. It was, he wasn't raised that way. It, he didn't understand it. 
So he was not enforcing the people and telling them you've got to get bat- you've got to get circumcised when you're eight days old. And we don't know why they didn't. It was something they're going to do on. By Jesus' day, it's, it's extremely important. And the Jews get circumcised by eight days. And Paul makes a big deal of it. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And I got circumcised on the eighth day. And this, that, and he went down his whole line of perfect behavior as a, as a Jewish believer or a non-believer at the time. So we see this. And, and it says here that God told Joshua, make sharp stone, make sharp, sharp knives, and circumcise all the people of Israel. And you've got to think about this. You've just crossed the river of Jordan into the enemy territory, and the very first thing you're going to do is incapacitate your army. You know, God loves doing things that are strange. <laughs> You know, we're going to be incapacitated for two to, two to three weeks while we heal from this surgery that we just did in our entire army. All 600,000 fighting men and all the older people and all the kids, you know, so there's more than 600,000 men being circumcised. So that, like I said, the very first thing you do, you come into the enemy territory, you, you, and the very first thing you do is incapacitate your army. If I had been Joshua, I would probably have done it on the side of the Jordan where it was a little safer. I'd already defeated my enemies, not on the side that I was. But this is God. God so often tells us to do things that make no sense to us. All right? And oftentimes God's going to do this in this book of Joshua and in the book of Judges. You know, we look at the battle plan for taking Jericho. We've got this great walled, walled, fortified city, and when we get there, we're going to cover it more. But his battle plan was, okay, the first day, walk around the city. Okay, Joshua, that's a really good plan. We, we now know every inch of the city. What are we going to do? We're going to do it again. Okay, Joshua, we're kind of seeing how strong that city is. Uh, what are we going to do now? How are we going to take it? We're going to walk around it again. Six days in a row, he tells, God tells them to walk around the city. And don't say a word while you're doing it. Because <laughs> you can imagine the comments... What's Joshua think he's doing? You're all, all we're doing is walking around this stupid city and it's so strong and these guys up there are laughing at us and, and pointing at us. They're throwing things at us, you know, because they probably were. You know, they're making fun of us. We're just walking around the city. Day seven. All right, we have a change in the battle plan. All right, we're going to finally attack him. Yeah, we're going to walk around the city seven times. <laughs> okay, Joshua, we're going we're to see how strong that city is and we're going to be really tired when we get done. Oh, and by the way, when the seventh time, we're going to blow the trumpets and the walls are going to fall down and you're going to walk straight into the city and kill everybody that's in there. And all the, all the, all the spoil goes to God. Can you imagine? If you were the soldier, think about how you'd be thinking of that. We know because we know how, the, how it ends. <laughs> but, you know, it would be like, uh, this Joshua guy, he was a pretty good general while we were in the wilderness. He was a good general when we were on the east side of the Jordan, but... Uh, He's kind of lost his marvel since we got on this side of the, on the west side of the Jordan. You know, we just don't know what's going on with him. Which is why God told him to be silent. So they wouldn't be having all this murmuring because the people love to murmur. God's plans are so interesting sometimes. When he picks the second king of Israel, who does he pick? A little shepherd boy. <laughs> Says, okay, this shepherd boy is going to be king of Israel. 
What's a, what's a shepherd boy know about taking a, being king? We look at what God does to, to save his people. How did he save Israel from being starved to death before they, when they were only 70 people? He sent Joseph to, to, to Egypt 17 years or, uh, 13 years earlier to become a servant and be elevated up to second in charge of the kingdom. What kind of plan is that? Why, God, why couldn't you just send him down and make him king? You know, why do you have to make him a servant first? God's plans are sometimes so different from what we would plan. And here we see the very first thing they do is incapacitate an army. <laughs> While the people are afraid to death of them. If they had known what was going on, they, they would have known this was the time to go kill them. You know, if, they, if God hadn't done this great miracle and, and made them scared to, so scared, they, they, they would have been, and they'd come to war, Israel would have been dead meat. But because of the miracle, they were afraid and they didn't bother Israel when they were incapacitated. And God chose to elevate them spiritually. They fulfilled their spiritual commitment. They were to be circumcised and outwardly proclaim the covenant that God had with Abraham. You are my people. I am your God. I will be your God. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I will give you everywhere that the sole of your foot has tread. I will give you. And they're now entering into the land of, of the flowing with milk and honey. And God says, now we're going to renew the covenant. The covenant that was by grace. Abraham did not have to do anything for that promise to be fulfilled. God did not go to Abraham and say, Abraham, as long as you follow me and you're obedient to me, uh, the, the people that bless you are going to be blessed and those that curse you are going to be cursed and you're going to get this land and, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and, and the sand of the sea. There was no condition whatsoever placed on it. These murmuring, backsliding, disobedient people who have crossed the, the Jordan are having the covenant renewed. They don't deserve the covenant still. And God says, I'm renewing the covenant with you. By my grace and mercy, I'm showing you that the covenant still stands. We as Christians come to Christ. We are saved by grace. We do nothing to earn our salvation. And you know what? We do nothing to keep our salvation. This is something we have to understand. When we get saved, we are saved eternally, forever. And nothing I can do can unsave me. Now the question is, when somebody totally turns away from God, was were they ever saved? Did they have a true salvation experience with God? And I will tell you, probably not. If they can walk away from God, go into sin without conviction, they did not have a saving experience with God. Because even when you backslide, if you are one of his children, you are under conviction. You cannot sin as his child and not feel the conviction for it. You may do it long enough that you kind of make it nothing in your life, but there's always that conviction. I can tell you that during the period of time when I was backslidden, I was under so much conviction. Every time I talked about God, and you know, it's pretty bad when you're backsliding and you're telling everybody they need Jesus. 
and you haven't gone to church, you haven't prayed, and you haven't picked up a Bible in, in months to a year, and you're telling everybody they need Jesus. <laughs> oh, the conviction involved in that. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, God, yeah, I hear you, go away. <laughs> You know, I know, I know I'm supposed to be doing something different. I know I'm not supposed to be doing this. God disciplines his children. He will make sure that we will follow after him. If you can sin without being disciplined and falling under conviction, then you have to wonder, am I his child? Am I truly his child if I can do something that I know is wrong and not be convicted? And... The children of Israel have been doing all kinds of wrong things. They've never felt the conviction. And God says, I'm bringing you my grace. We're going to renew the covenant of Abraham with you all, and you don't deserve it. For by grace are we saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. No matter what we do, we don't deserve salvation. Ever. And this is something we have to keep reminding ourselves. I am never good enough for God to say, okay, you finally, re you finally reached it. You don't need Jesus anymore. And I've met lots of Christians, people living Christian lives, trying to get to the place where they probably don't say it that way, but if you listen to their life, they're trying to go, I've got to get good enough so I deserve my salvation. So that Jesus really wasn't all that important. I, I, I got there. I arrived. Well, never arrive. We can make ourselves more sanctified. We can learn to let God crucify our flesh. We can learn to be more, more perfect. We can learn to be following God in a greater and deeper way, but we will never arrive at perfection because even if we did, we had our past. It's not imperfect. And, you know, there's, a, there's an old saying that goes, you know, many people are looking for the perfect church. Well, the problem is if you find the perfect church, you can't attend there because you're not perfect. And so we'll never find a perfect church because it, the church is made up of imperfect people. And so if you're looking for a perfect church, you'll never find it. And even if you did, you don't belong there, if you're really honest with yourself, because you would ruin the perfect church. And here we see the children of Israel getting God's grace, saying, I'm giving you this land. Here's why you're getting it. 470 years before this, I promised Abraham this land as a gift of grace. You all now are getting to go in and take this gift of grace that I'm giving you. God's gift of grace. He gives sinners like us jobs to do for him. And have you ever really thought about that? The fact that we sinners get to do things for God. It's really an amazing thing when you think about it. Especially when he's got a whole fleet, you know, legions and legions and thousands and ten thousands, hundred thousands, millions of angels to come down and do whatever he wants. And yet he uses imperfect people to serve him. I can never get over that. That God uses us. And he's going to use the children of Israel the same way. You don't deserve it. You've been murmuring and complaining. Now every time you turn around, you gripe and complain. You kept wanting to go back to Egypt. And now I'm bringing you into the promised land. And we're going to find out they're not much better. They seem to be a little bit better with, with Joshua. They don't murmur and complain quite as much as they did, at least written down, as they did with Moses. But Moses was taking them through a pretty hard time. Forty years in the wilderness. Now, 
Just think about 40 years in the desert. No home, no house, no air conditioning, <laughs> no, no food other than manna, water only from the rock that's following you. Know how that rock follows them? That's a whole other story altogether because that's a miracle and the water keeps flowing from the rock. All the miracles they see and they keep murmuring and complaining. And God still uses them. Still uses them in a great way. Aren't you thankful that God will use you? Will use me? Will use those around us? And you know, sometimes it's amazing what God will do through us. When we don't know how to minister, God can minister the best through us. Have you ever met anybody that has ever asked the question, can God save somebody as bad as me? I've met a handful of people like that, and the answer is automatic, yes. Well, you don't know what I did. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter what you've done. God saved Peter. Peter had a bad habit of putting his foot in his mouth and, and doing what he wanted to do. He saved Paul. Paul took and uh, arrested Christians and had them murdered. How, bad, how much worse could you get? Uh, he was saving a man like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was quite a king. He, he loved to be brutal to people before he became a Christian or the equivalent of a Christian in their day. He was a follower of God and he changed completely. We look at all these people that God can get hold of and make changes of. Oh, God can use anybody. Do we truly believe that God can use anybody? Really important for us to do that. In the books Crossing the Switchblade, uh, David Wilkerson is, is giving the gospel to Nikki Cruz, and Nikki Cruz is second in charge of, I think, second or first in charge of the worst gang in New York at the time. And he tells, he, and David Wilkerson says that he was terrified of Nikki because he was that mean. He killed people, and he knew that he killed people. And Nikki told him one day, I'm going to cut you up, and I think it was 150 pieces. I don't remember, don't quote that right. And David answered him, and every piece will say, Jesus loves you. <laughs> you know, and it, it bothered Nikki. How can somebody be this crazy? <laughs> you know, we never know the simple things that we can say that will touch somebody's life. God is not looking for huge soliloquies to say, you know, to preach his gospel. He's just saying, speak what I give you to speak. Do what I give you to do. Now, what does it take to reach somebody? Who knows what that might be? It might be teaching them how to be a mother or a father. It might be teaching them how to be a better husband or wife. It may be teaching them that there's another way of living than the way that they have seen for four generations. You know, we need to understand when somebody lives in a very bad lifestyle, that's all they know. When I talk to some of these prisoners out there, most of these guys do not think that what they've done in, in their life is wrong because they're just doing what dad did. They're just doing what grandpa did. They're just doing what great grandpa did. They don't understand that there's a moral law that they're breaking as well as regular civil law. They just say, this is the only way I know how to live. How do we change that lifestyle in people? We need to show them there's another way to live, the way that God chooses to live. And that is not easy. It's not easy to change the way people live. Think about when you first got saved, if you, especially if you got saved later in life. How hard was it to learn just that you should go to church? That you should read your Bible? 
that you should pray. I grew up doing this stuff. It wasn't no big deal to me. I pretty much grew up. Age 10, I got saved, and it's what I've done most of my life. But if somebody gets saved at 20, 30 years old, reading the Bible probably has not been a part of their life. Going to church was not part of their life. All of a sudden, there's a new way of living that they're trying to learn. And Hebrews tells us, forsake not the assembling of yourselves, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Come to church. Meet with other Christians. And God says, do it. He says to meditate on his word every day, to read his word every day, to meditate on God every day, to pray without ceasing, to share the gospel. All these things take time for us to learn. Now, let's take it even further. You're not even saved and you're trying to figure out how to change your life in a way that you don't know that there's another way to change your life. And then we come along and we want to judge you because you're not walking the way that we think you should walk in Christ. Well, you just become a Christian and we're, we're judging because you haven't automatically changed all your life. Because you don't know that there's another way to live. We need to learn to be very merciful and gracious to people as they're trying to learn about God. Even with those in this room. There's all kinds of things. If I wanted to be picking on people because you're not where I am after my 40 years of, of ministering with God, I could pick on all kinds of Well, how come you don't do this? How come you don't do this? How come you're not doing this? Because you haven't grown there yet. <laughs> Yeah, everybody can pick on me too. But, but you see what I'm saying. We cannot judge people by where God has put us because we didn't start where we're at. We're growing in Christ ourselves. God is taking things out of our lives each day, each week, each month, each year. We need to be very gentle with those that are trying to come to Christ and learn to love them where they're at. Not saying, okay, your sin is okay. That's not what I'm saying. We're not saying your sin is okay, your disobedience is okay. But we say, let's help you get another way of thinking. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, here, there a little. We take and change our thought process, processes over time. It's taken many years for each one of us that are walking with God. It's taken us years to get wherever we're at. And it will take many years to get, where we, to get where we want to be. We won't get to where we want to be if our goal is perfection, which hopefully is our goal. We will die and God will glorify us and we will be made perfect. But until then, we're going to keep being sanctified. He's going to make us more and more perfect. And our most important thing is not to look down on people who aren't there yet. Because they need to get there. And here, we see the grace that's been put on the children of Israel. They've been in disobedient. They have not been under the covenant of, of Abraham. They have been in a place where they should have been cut off and God has been making them victorious in battle. He's been feeding them with manna. He's been feeding them with quail. He's been giving them water. They haven't lost a battle for 40 years in the wilderness. Do they deserve it? No, they're out of covenant. <laughs> but God's mercy and his grace says, I'm going to keep my word with you even though you haven't kept my you're not doing what you're supposed to I'm going to keep my part of the bargain oh how God keeps his part even when we don't his grace and his mercy are so valuable to us and here they are they've been circumcised and it says all the males were circumcised in verse 5 it says now all the males then that came out were circumcised and that's why we went back to Exodus 12 to be part of the Passover, they had to be circumcised if they hadn't already been. Now, many of them would have been, but not all of them. And you say, no, 
all of them are going to be circumcised. So when they come out of Egypt, every one of them have been circumcised. And it says for 40 years they have not circumcised. Now, does that mean that every single male had not been circumcised during this period of time? I don't know. Could there have been a handful that were because they're going, you know, hey, God made a covenant with Abraham, and I remember this covenant with Abraham. We're going to circumcise our child at eight days. I'm sure there were some. There's always a remnant of believers. So there were probably a handful of them that were circumcising their children and saying, hey, God said it, we're doing it. But the majority did not. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. We're living in a day and age where everything seems to be going against God. We're living in a day and an age where it seems like even the majority of Christians, so-called, are going against God. And we're seeing whole denominations that are going against God's word. We're seeing lots of Christians who go against God's word, but there's always a remnant of believers following him. When Elijah complained, God, I'm the only one that's worshiping you, he says, go away, there's 5,000 that haven't bent their knees, go back to, and do what I told you to do. I was going to say, uh, there is a fact that a majority of the children these days are circumcised. Yeah, but that's not because of spiritual reasons. That's just they, they decided that that was good. Uh, still, God uh, wanted to be circumcised, and they are. Yeah, God wanted the Jewish people to be circumcised. The purchase price of Micah was yeah. a certain number of foreskins of the Philistines. Two or three times that number. And he brought back more than what he yeah. was required well, to bring. Because Saul didn't want him to be his son-in-law at the time. Didn't expect him to kill that many Philistines and take their foreskins. <laughs> that was all it was. It had no that was no spiritual there was no spiritual connection in that. It was just uh, oh you, you you killed the you killed the you know, the shepherd boy has killed the giant, and oh, uh, now you're going to marry my daughter. Here's, here's what you now have to do. You have to go earn. He figured he'd either get killed or not do it. Yeah. It was just something that Saul didn't think that this little shepherd boy was, number one, capable of doing or would do. So. There's another story where they killed those guys while they were sore. Killed what? They killed those guys after they were circumcised, and they came in and killed them. Yes, uh, Levi, Levi oh, and I uh, can't remember because of the rape of Diane. Yeah, they came. They, in. Circ they circumcised all the people of Shechem, and then killed them. Then the three brothers killed all the men of Shechem. While they were sore from having them. Yeah. Circumcision. Yeah, that was Jacob. Uh, Levi and I can't remember the other son that was involved in it, but. I don't remember. I don't remember. I'm not even going to. But anyway, that was another. But the, piece of the circumcision. But the prince, prince of Shechem, raped, raped Dinah, and then they went in and told him, "Well, you know, the only way we'll take you on as our family is if every male gets circumcised." And they went in, and while they were still unable to fight, and killed every male of Shechem. So, yes, and that's why this is kind of an interesting place because they're at their weakest point right now. They're, they're at a place where they could easily be taken right, over. That's what I meant. All right. Let's see, verse uh, 7. Uh, well, verse 6 basically tells us that they had not been circumcised in, in, since Egypt. Uh, 
and uh, he's going to give them the land that they they were sworn to by Abraham, but they had to be renewed. And it says, and their children whom they raised up in their said, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised in the way. So here we are, an entire camp. We know there's 660,000 fighting men. Now, this did not happen in a day. Now, this circumcision process did not happen in a day because, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that are needing to be circumcised. This is going to take a period of time. Because even if you had a lot of people during the, doing this circumcision, it's not happening instantly. Because right now, according to this, the only two people that are circumcised would be Joshua and Caleb. Because they're the ones that came out of Egypt. Possibly some of the older men that were coming through here. Because remember, the only ones that have died are those that are 20 years and over. So any male that are 20 years and younger would have been circumcised. So there's a handful of people that have been circumcised. But nobody born during that period of time has been circumcised according to this. And again, is there a remnant? Quite possibly. Because there's always a remnant of people following God. All right, so we see this, and it says, and it came to pass in verse 8 that when they were done circumcised, that the people, that they abode in, the places in, the, in their places in the camp till they were whole. Now, I don't know how long it takes to get totally healed from this. I would say a week to two at least, if not three, but let's give them a month. You know, so they're sitting there, camped in, camped in Gilead, uh, at Gilead for days. All right? And... We know that they crossed on the first day, uh, the tenth day of the first month. And we talked about that last week. And that, that should ring a bell for everybody. The first day of the tenth month is when you pick the lamb for Passover. All right? It's the, Passover, the day you pick the Passover lamb. They entered into the promised land on the day that they picked the Passover lamb. The tenth day of the first month. All right. So this is a big deal. When did they leave Egypt? On the on the fifteenth day of the first month, because it was the day after the sacrifice had been made. They had been walking and wandering in the wilderness for forty to forty-one years, somewhere in that ballpark. You know, because they wandered in forty years, there was a year in Sinai, and it's kind of unclear whether that year is added in or not to the 40 years of in the wilderness or Mount Sinai is part of that 40 years of wandering which is probably part of the 40 years of wandering so it has been exactly 40 years minus four days <laughs> and they enter into the promised land and they get circumcised to renew the covenant kind of a special thing when you see how God works things out God is pretty big into numbers and how they work out for, for, his, for his information. And they came into the promised land to complete the promise at the time of the Passover, which means that they're in the springs. We know they're in the spring anyway because of the flood, flood stage of the, of the River Jordan. But it's kind of amazing that he puts in this little detail. They entered in at the time of Passover. What is Passover? It was when they were delivered out of Egypt to take what should have been only about a week to two week trip to get to the promised land and it takes them 40 years to get there. Now, 
Now, hopefully none of us have ever been so slow at learning that it's taken us 40 years to learn something. I've come close. <laughs> I've come close in my lifetime, but it hasn't taken me 40 years to learn something. Some people hopefully have not, but they, 40 years of being, learning, trying to learn their lessons. How patient is God? It's amazing his patience he has with people. How long do we have to reject him before he, he finally gives up on us? We know there's a period of time when he does. We look at Noah's time when God said, okay, I'm through with the people. They're so evil, I'm done with them. There's a time in Sodom and Gomorrah where he says, I'm through with them. They're so evil, I cannot let them exist any longer. There's times when the Canaanites in the Promised Land, I'm, they're so evil, I'm done with them. Go kill all of them. There's going to come a time when God says, I'm done with them. I'm going to destroy all, everything and start all over. And this time he'll start with the remnant that he's redeemed from this world, which is us. God does have a limit to his patience. It's a lot further than any of us would be willing to go. It's fair to say that his patience outweighs our bondage Uh Most cases, yeah. it can. What did he do with the 40 years in the wilderness? Why? To get rid of those who were so stubborn, saying, I'm not, we're not going into the promised land. Says God. God says, fine, then you'll all die in the wilderness. So he was patient. He was patient, but he also... His original intention was for them to go into the promised land and conquer it. One year after they were left because they took the year in Sinai learning how to be follow, correct worshipers of God. And they rejected him, so they walked another 39 years in the wilderness. Kept murmuring and complaining. <laughs> murmuring and complaining the whole time. The child, the, before, the, before the flood of Noah, God finally just said, I am fed up with these people. Okay, no, I'm going to choose you and your family, and that's all I'm going to do to save, because you are at least trying to follow me. Not a very good follower, as we find out, because what's the first thing he does after he gets off the ark? He plants a vineyard and gets drunk. <laughs> all right, this is righteous Noah, the, the pinnacle of righteousness who gets saved, and the very first thing he's doing is getting drunk. <laughs> I... I believe that why he got drunk is probably from depression. Because you think about it's eight people left on this world in a world that probably had billions of people in it, that was technologically advanced and most likely, and now they don't have anything. You know, think about what would happen even, you know, we've got, you know, we got eight people in this room. Let's say this eight people started a brand new civilization. We each have certain skills, but could we do everything that we're used to doing? Would any of us know how to make the devices to make electricity? Would we know how to, you know, we know that there's silver and gold and, and tin and everything. How many of us would recognize the minerals if we saw them in their raw, raw? We're used to computers, how, you know, I, I could build a computer if I had the parts to a computer, but I couldn't build the parts to the computer. Okay. <laughs> why, would we, why would we need one? But you understand what I'm saying. Noah has gone from a very technologically advanced society, and we've gone through that way back when we went through the, the genealogy in chapter, chapter 6 
and how far advanced that they were coming in metallurgy and, and music and everything. And some people believe that they were extremely technologically advanced, and I have some feelings that they probably were. I believe that some of our stories of Atlantis and all the high technology that has been lost are probably from that period of time. Uh, and that's my speculation, my opinion. I'm not going to hold anybody to that, and, I'm not gonna, and I can't make a case for it. I believe that it was very technologically advanced, not quite as far as we are with all the tech, you know, and all that's destroyed in an instant. And a year later, he's coming off an arc to a world that's devastated. Doesn't look anything like what he's used to seeing. All he's got is two of every animal, 14 clean animals, and two of every other animal, and eight people in a land that he's used to having bustling cities and bustling people all around, he's now stepping out into a world that's empty and devoid of everything that he's used to. Can you imagine the depression that he went through? So kind of no wonder that he got drunk. It would be a horrible experience. You know, yes, I've been saved, but what have I been saved into? It's kind of like some of the science fiction things when they show you after the nuclear war. And people see the devastation and, and how hard it would be if you were to somehow survive the nuclear devastation, to step out and, and not be poisoned by the radi radioactive. But you, know, you step out into a land that's totally devastated. This is what he walked off the ark into. A land that is totally different from anything that he has seen. Nobody's left. Like Adam is nobody there. Yeah, basically. He's got his family, so he's got more than nobody, but he's got nobody his age other than his wife to talk to. And anybody who's been older knows how that, you know, generation gap is not something new. It's always been out there. So he has six kids that he's going to talk to, but there's going to be a gap between them. He's got his wife, and that's the only person he can talk to that is his age. Is there a chance that if it wasn't done on purpose, that he did accidentally? Possibly. I'm just saying I can understand why it would be something he would do. I'm just saying that he's walking out to a devastated world. I can understand. Did he get it done, done on purpose? Probably not. But he is suffering most likely from a depression. And any one of us would be suffering from a depression when we step off and there's eight of us. In a world that he's got responsibility to the eight people. He's got responsibility to the animals. And there's nothing that he's used to seeing. The whole world has changed. The sky has changed. The water cloud, the cloud, the water cover is gone. It fell down. Now, whether it was just very heavy, thick clouds or little water, I'm not going to go there. But there was said God split the waters with the firmament, and that's part of what kept the radiation and everything from the sun when it, the flood came and it fell. Now, was it just really heavy, thick clouds like we see on on Venus that did it? That's possible. I'm not going to, because clouds are water. You know, who knows what exactly the water form the water took. I'm not going to argue that. But he's changed. Everything has changed. There's not the cloud cover that he's used to seeing. There's no, the trees have been devastated. They've been covered. You know, there's some trees that are growing right now. The grass may be starting to come back. Yeah, vineyard, right? Well, he's making a vineyard. Uh, so what does he find? A devastated landscape and where there was millions, billions of people, just his, just his family. He had to have been 
120 years. 120 years. Bam, bam. Hey, just going, going, going. You knew what was going to happen, but the reality happened. There's a strong chance. He had so many the reality. Well, that's possible. He was so busy, he never thought about the reality. And how many times do we do something knowing the reality, you know, knowing what's going to happen, but not, the reality doesn't hit home until it happens? Experience that happened to me. When I was in Bible college, before I got married, I went and visited my mom on the West Coast. While I was on the West Coast, my dad, my step, stepmom, my, my stepbrothers and all of them, a half-brother and, and my stepsister, all moved away. Now, I knew they were going to move away, okay? <laughs> they moved away to go to Quito, Ecuador to be missionaries. You know, so I kind of laugh. I go, all these, all these uh, comedians that talk about their family moving away, it happened to me. <laughs> Okay, I went on vacation, came back. But you know, knowing that they weren't going to be there was a lot different than getting there and all of a sudden realizing I have no family here anymore. All my family is gone and I'm the only one here. I think that's what happened to Noah. He kind of realizes life's going to be very different, but until he gets there, it really doesn't dawn on him the full scope of what is going to be different. God does this so many times with us when we are called into ministry or we're called to do something for him. We kind of know that there's going to be something special by being called, but usually we don't know the full scope and reality of what God's calling us to do until we get there. We kind of go, okay, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this. I think God's calling me to do this. And then when you finally get there, it's like, wow, this is, this is even better than I thought it was going to be. Might even be, this is even harder than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, we get to where God's called us and we go, man, God, I never expected this. I never expected you to do what you have done. As we follow and grow with God and we give up, have you ever given something up that you never thought you would give up for God and you just give it up and go, I don't miss it at all. Wow, this is so wonderful not to have to do this anymore. I've had many experiences where I'm going, God, I'm not ready to give this up, not ready to give up, not ready to give up, give it up, and going, God, I don't even miss it at all. It's so much nicer to have this much extra time to be able to do this or have this part of my life and not have to worry about that. The reality of where God brings us is always so different from what we think it's going to be. And we get to go, wow, so much better. So much better. Job going through all of his trials, all these hard times that he goes through. And God, once he finally gets Job to realize, you know, this is all for you to learn. I want you to learn that I'm, I'm your gift. I'm the one that gives you everything. God gives him twice as much as he took away. You know. Now, granted, he had to wait till he died to see his, the first seven, uh, first seven sons and three girls because they were in heaven. But he also had twice as many kids. You know. I feel sorry for Mrs. Job. She had to give birth. She had to give birth to uh, let's see, 14 boys and six girls, 20 kids. Huh? I don't remember how old he lived to be. Job? Okay. Long enough, long enough to have a lot of kids. But see, those kind of numbers, though, would also tell us why 
before the flood with people living to be 900 years old, there were a lot of people there. I played with a spreadsheet, you know, and I figured uh, a you know, birth rate of only, you know, for 30 years, you know, every five, or five years or something, and I put a death rate in and, and still came up with billions of people alive at the time of the flood. Billions. When he was called? 800, 900. Yeah, he's like 900 too. Yeah. He's going to get off the, you know, he's going to be called at 500. He's going to get on the ark in his 600s. And he's going to live another 200 or so years after that. So, Adam had just died. He was just older. But yeah, if you remember the charts I've given you, Adam had Adam had only died, of, you know, 80 or 100 years before Noah was born. He just barely missed knowing great 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 grandpa Adam. Can you imagine? Imagine being Adam. He lives to within 500 years of the, you know, five, 600 years of the flood. So things are getting bad. Realizing I'm the cause of all this. How would you like to have been Adam? Even I ate that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, and she and I are the cause of all of this evil that he's watching. And he didn't even live to the worst part of it when God says, I've had enough. Now, if you look at the genealogy there, Noah was spared one very important death in his family. His father died a year before the flood. Lemek died a year before the flood. His grandfather died in the, the year of the flood. Now, whether he died before the flood or died in the flood, we don't know. But he died the year of the flood. Yes. And then Methuselah died in the year of the flood. So we don't know if he died because, you know, as a result of the flood or if he would, Noah again was spared the, the having to keep, you know, to know that grandpa died. You know, we don't know that because he died at the year of the flood. So it could be just the same year, different time or not, because we don't get into those kind of dates on their death. But you can figure all of these things that you see. You know, Seth lives close to the flood. You know, he gets to see an almost perfect world. Yes, they've been kicked out, but he gets to see an almost perfect world get more and more evil to the point of destruction. These guys lived a long time. They, they got to see the worst. You know, almost as bad as what we're seeing in our day and age, for those who are older, seeing when there was a righteousness in our country to the unrighteousness that we have now is hard to, hard to stomach sometimes. And it's not as bad as what they saw. Okay, and yet, think about it. We have a hard time with what we're seeing. How hard it must have been for some of them to just see what was going on and see the devastation that was coming on as they're going forward. You know, this book is a real book with real issues that we don't even think about half the time because we just read the story and go, oh yeah, these guys lived a long time. Oh yeah, God got mad at them. A lot of people died. A lot of people died a very horrible death. They drowned. Almost a creation drowned. Huge problems after that. Disobedience of people. God said, go out in all the world. And what did they do? They settled in Mesopotamia. Okay, we're, we're just going to stay here. Stay right here, you know, and just stay here. 
and God finally had to get them moving by when Nimrod tried to build a tower that would go to the heavens. God changed the languages of everybody, and then they go, okay, well, we can't talk to each other. We're going to go ahead and move. So God says, okay, we're going to make you move. Get moving. And they, and they moved, finally, after God made them move. And even that, you know, we, we kind of look at it as, well, what's the big deal of lang different languages? Well, to us, it's no big deal because we hear different languages all the time. We know words in, you know, even the most, you know, unlearned person in other languages probably knows words in other languages. If you speak English, you know words in other languages automatically. But be in a place where you've never heard another language. And you get somebody going, give me I drink a bit. <laughs> and you're going, uh, we've been working all day together. Uh, you got sunstroke or something? You, you were speaking in a bunch of garbled words. And they're looking at you like, uh, what do you, I didn't understand a word you just said. You know, you've been working with these people all day long. And all of a sudden, you can't understand a word they're saying. You've never heard a different language. Ever. You're not, there's no concept of another language. And all of a sudden, everybody's speaking different languages. And they believe there's 20 to 50 original languages that God split the world into and then moved them out. Now, we have hundreds and thousands of languages now, but they believe that there's only 20 or 50, depending on how tightly they try to, to split them up. But that split the world up, and people went all over the place. And then we had our DNA changing, you know, DNA and, and changes that made difference in people. But the Bible gives us these answers, and it tells us how things happen. But, you know, we, we read these things and don't ever think about how deep they really are, how special they really are. We just kind of read them and go, okay, God, wonderful story. You know, I try to put myself in most of these stories, which is why I try to make them come alive. What if I was Abraham told, leave your, leave your family in a time when you didn't leave your family? Okay? He says, take, take your wife and get out of, the, get out of, get out of Dodge. You know, okay? Leave your dad, leave your, leave your brother, you know, uncles and just go. Go to where I'm going to tell you to go. And he went. Now, he wasn't quite obedient. He took his dad and he took his nephew. <laughs> and he was told to leave everybody, which meant that he stopped in Haran for 20 years and lived in disobedience for 20 years and then finally got up after his dad died and left still taking Lot who is going to cause problems Lot's going to take the best land and he's going to end up creating Ammon and Moab the enemies of Israel so why? because Abraham took him out with him we look at these things and we say the story is much deeper than we sometimes think about. Not just the spiritual story, but the literal story. And we're going to end because I went way past our time to stop. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us as we go forward today. Give us opportunities to share you with others. Give us opportunities to learn more and more about you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.